You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I hope you will stay with me for the next hour as we take a tour of the arts. As we edge ever closer to having a mostly vaccinated population, I'm starting to imagine sitting in a theatre again Going to the movies, attending a festival or a concert, talking to artists face to face. It seems tantalisingly close. And yet, I'm not sure how it will feel to be in the midst of so many people. It's going to be rather overwhelming. The frequency with which I have dreams about being in a crowded space and suddenly realising that no one is wearing a mask and then realising that neither am I and feeling a panicky need to escape is, while it's not quite a nightly occurrence, certainly a realm I visit multiple times per week. On the plus side, I have stopped having the dream about not having gone to classes and having an anxiety attack about how I'm going to pass my exams. So yes, there is that silver lining. But two of the events on this week's show remind me of that missing year of arts events, as they were two of the last events I went to and talked about on this show before the arts went dark. The True False Film Fest and the University of Missouri's annual undergraduate visual arts and design showcase. And in that year, I have become so used to chatting to people via an audio app rather than sitting across from them in the studio. Before those of us who could retreated to our homes, my KOPN pal, Mike Hagen, used to encourage me to contact artists farther afield and chat with them by phone. And I said, no, that would be too difficult. That the rapport of looking at someone while they tell their story would be lost. So there's another silver lining, for me at least. A year of making radio shows from home has allowed me to be comfortable talking to people I can't see. In fact, I think I might now secretly prefer it. The intimacy of audio, of having someone's voice in your ear and then asking your brain to conjure the rest of the story, is really what radio is all about. This past week, KOPN held its spring pledge drive to raise funds so that we can keep on making radio and sending a variety of voices, of expertise and interests, of eclectic music, out into the ether and into your ears. So if you haven't quite got round to making a donation yet, go to kopn.org and send a little love in our direction. And that way, Not only can I keep chatting about the arts to people I can't see and one day soon start chatting to people that I can see sitting across from me in the studio, but also all those other great KOPN shows keep getting made. Food Sleuth with Melinda Hemmelgarn, Pat's Power Pop and Punk Hour, my go-to listening when making Friday night dinner, 
Motherland Jam with the sounds of Africa on Saturday afternoons. Community Pulse on Monday and Wednesday mornings, keeping me informed. And so many more. So... If you're sitting comfortably, let's head out on today's art tour. We've got movies, art and a super secret variety show to cover. Are you ready? There has definitely been some nostalgic sadness in the air this week as everyone sighs and says, oh, this time last year we were talking about true-false films. Also, this time last year, COVID panic had just hit most of us. And so whilst I too am sad that I didn't spend all weekend watching films, I feel like I've been living in one for the past year and that maybe I'm beginning to see the closing credits start to roll. But never once to disappoint the true-false film Fest crew have not only adapted the fest to an outdoor May offering, but to get us from here to there, they have put together a weekly schedule of films of yore to keep us documentary oriented and to help fill us in on the schedule. This week is Ragtag programmer Ted Rogers. Welcome back to the show, Ted. Hi, thanks for having me, Diana. I love this idea of a retrospective of past true-false films to keep us engaged as we wait for the festival to come around on May 5th through the 9th. And of course, with 17 years of films to choose from, there is a phenomenal wealth of options. What was the paring down process to choose just eight? Well, I worked directly with David Wilson, of course, the co-founder and the uh, acting artistic director for the fest, as well as uh, our current programmers, Angela Catalano and Amir George, to start going through the entire package. There's been a lot of documentation over the years. Obviously, the process of programming the fest every year involves a massive crew of individuals who watch every film that is submitted and the process of paring down the selected films every year is, you know, pretty hotly debated. So there's a wealth of programming notes. Um, you can sort of see how these each year's fest could have been shaped differently, and you can definitely see who's championed what over the years. Because certainly um, there are enormous screenings every year's fest, but I think what really makes any festival experience for myself and for a lot of folks are the smaller screenings. And a lot of those times, the films in those smaller spaces are the films that a given programmer, you know, really put their foot down with and, (laughs) you know, that this was the film, this was the film for them that year. Uh, And so that's really the basis for, for all eight of these films, that this was somebody's be all and end all. Well, I have to confess that none of the films in your selection of eight made it into my viewing choices during their true-false debut years. So tell me a little bit about the curation arc of these eight. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, uh, sequence just is is sort of a general recipe, sort of akin to building a mixtape of starting out high, taking it higher, cooling it down, (laughs) (laughs) closing with a bang, you know, these sort of general ideas. But... um, All eight films, I think, really are not just emblematic, but really instructive of the ethos of the fest. Because True-False isn't just a general uh, documentary film festival. It's really a celebration of nonfiction in all of its forms and the forms that we maybe don't know yet. That, That film is a living art form. And so all of these films really push the medium. They've done something new, they've experimented, they've said something, they engage with 
classic ideas. They challenge classic ideas. And they're really sort of a primer for what makes a true false experience. Well, certainly, you know, one of the fabulous things I love about true false is that you have these multiple gravities of filmmaking styles. You have the more mainstream style docs like Searching for Sugar Man or Queen of Versailles or Queen of Versailles, I suppose it's called the Queen of Versailles or Man on Wire. And then the ones, like you say, who I think I think of as more esoteric, more about the deep art of filmmaking with experimental components, which seem to generally have a smaller audience because they're usually in the smaller venues. And the films in the Hindsight series, like you say, are are all of these deep art of filmmaking style films. Was there any discussion about having more mainstream, as I call them, more mainstream accessible films as part of the Hindsight series? Uh, no, not at all, actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the hope here was to really highlight the films that that drive, I think, the passion behind behind the festival's programming from its very inception. You know, that's not to say that more mainstream films are not in any way less valuable, but the role of a, of a festival in sort of the ecosystem of filmmaking and film distribution uh, is that the festival is really where these things begin to bear fruit. This is where distributors come into the mix. This is where films sort of legacies are built. And the most common critique of, of festivals or the, the ecosystem more broadly is that, you know, it's made up of essentially of a, of a big group of gatekeepers. And so it was really important to make sure that these were the films that had been championed for a reason, you know, that these were the films that would go on to sort of shape in some ways what we would eventually call more mainstream, you know, that, that some of these forms, and especially in the older films here, have really, at the time, were seen as very avant-garde and I think are maybe more influential than we necessarily are, are able to give them credit for. But no, they are all, uh, it, was, it was very important that we were, we were showing these films, especially because a lot of them are difficult to find. There are definitely very committed parties that have kept up some level of access to these films, but others have been very, very difficult to get a hold of. I mean, the mainstream titles that we show at True False have gone on to be on Netflix. They've had lives, uh, very full lives, uh, <laughs> following their festival run. Whether that's, you know, an art house cinema like Ragtag all over the country or all over the world showing these films. Or, you know, a streaming service. These are the films that are, are, are a lot harder to get to. So it's, it's really nice to be able to give them a platform. Okay, good point. (laughs) Well, let's take a look at the schedule. The first film in the Hindsight series called Did You Wonder Who Fired the Gun? That played at True False in 2017 and it opened with a drive-in last Saturday. It was your opening show of the fest, but it is still available through this Sunday. Give us a brief overview of, of that. So Did You Wonder Who Fired the Gun from Travis Wilkerson was a standalone film, but it also had a life as a live performance. Uh, When it was at True False, it was performed with a live score. The narration was provided live. And it really had this um, this kind of performance uh, feel to it. And that definitely is still there. And it's inherent, you know, and baked into the film that this is, uh, it's a spoken word piece, essentially, drawing from a lot of multimedia to build the visuals, whether that's repurposing Hollywood footage of Gregory Peck in uh, To Kill a Mockingbird or tearing through his digitized family eight millimeter films or just traditional um, interview. But I've described it as a, as a 
as a murder without a mystery and a multimedia detective story because it really dives into this question and, and I won't ruin it for anybody, <laughs> but it's it's a pretty phenomenal emotional experience. And I also had the uh, the opportunity to speak with Travis about it. And that's also available alongside the film, which really goes into his thought process, his his filmmaking process, and, and also what it felt like to to uh, to present in 2017 live. Obviously, that component, the live music and the live narration, obviously, isn't here because we're watching it on, on our TVs. Has that been baked in subsequent to it being shown at True-False? When it was at True-False, it was only shown with these live assets. But Travis had built the film to operate as, as a single-channel traditional film experience. And I should say, too, all of these films, you know, had enormous screen presentations, uh, but they all translate very well to a small screen experience. And that that was definitely a driving factor because there's a lot of films that don't, I don't believe work <laughs> on, on smaller screens, that there's a, uh, an emotional component that, that gets lost. You know, there might be an issue of engagement or uh, holding, holding interest. This is something that we all have to deal with at this point of trying to watch things at home is that these are films that I don't think you can look away from whether that's because they're devastating or powerful or just really fun, these are films that that will absolutely hold attention on a small screen. Um, but too, as I've said in the past as well, there's no reason not to procure a projector and watch these films big yourself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we have that. We could do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So from this Sunday and then for seven days thereafter, you have The Vanquishing of the Witch Baba Yaga from True False 2014, which follows fairy tales and personal memories like a trail of breadcrumbs in Eastern Europe's haunted woodlands, which sounds very compelling. What was it about this film that elevated it onto the list? Once again, not unlike Did You Wonder, it draws from a pretty wide spectrum of sources. It's definitely a multimedia experience. The photography, the primary photography is absolutely spellbinding, um, but there is an animated component and it it's definitely a, um, it, it's just a, the entire film is a metaphor and sort of exploding the idea of folklore because in Eastern Europe, the, the, the myth of Baba Yaga is essentially told in order to keep people out of the woods, right? To keep yourself safe, one cannot go into the haunted woodlands. But of course, years and years and years of political strife in Eastern Europe led to people taking refuge in the woods or taking up arms in the woods, that the sort of political realities have forced us to, or forced people of Eastern Europe to really rethink that fear inherent in the relationship of man to nature. And then on March the 21st, you have a wild stream, an intimate observation of two fishermen on the Sea of Cortez. And then at the end of the month, you have Actress, released in 2014 and directed by Columbia-based filmmaker Robert Green. And this is a film that I recall people loved or loathed. What do you love about it? I love, and and this extends as well to a wild stream. These are both very observational films, and they are very small, small scale. A wild stream is obviously um, shot on the Sea of Cortez, so it's a pretty that small scale is pretty breathtaking. But actress is all shot generally inside of a home in upstate New York, and that's why I think these two are a really strong pairing together because they look at two different ways in which a small scale can either be really liberating or really claustrophobic. But actress is. 
Uh, I, th- I think it can be a very potentially upsetting experience when, especially at this point in time, I think those of us who've, who've lived with a family who have been going through all of these sort of standard machinations of raising a family in America under COVID, it really just heightens everything that's in, that's, that's baked into actress. It, (laughs) I don't understand how people can hate it. I think it's more (laughs) so that there is a visceral experience when being sort of faced with just how difficult it is to raise a child or just how difficult it is to be a partner in a relationship, just how difficult it is to maintain the sort of essential process of, of raising a family. I think it's, um, it can be really alarming, uh, just how difficult that may have been, especially for people who have older kids. Now, I feel like there is this sort of parental, uh, amnesia that's sort of necessary to raise kids. And I think this film really like explodes that, uh, that amnesia. Um, and so it can feel like a really, uh, bracing cold shower, I suppose, but I think it's phenomenal. And I think too, it, it really just serves to examine the process of performance. You know, the subject in the film is an actress. So to sort of talk about authenticity, which is a conversation that's held across true false, you know, how authentic can a subject who is a professional performer be, um, and does that even matter? You know, so I think it's 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 ideologically what it's suggesting is pretty uh, revolutionary, and at the same time, just really essential to the conversation about nonfiction generally. Okay, I will go into it expecting a cold shower. <laughs> One film on the list that I think I just narrowly missed having on my must-see list is Shakedown, which opens on April the 4th. A joyous, unapologetic and electrifying lo-fi testament to an L.A. black lesbian strip club called Shakedown. This is the one I think I'm looking forward to the most. What comments did it elicit when it played at True False in 2018? I would say that anybody who was perhaps... Uh had a, a shocking or negative response, probably kept it to themselves. The film opens with a DJ at the club basically saying, if you're straight, don't stand in the front. That this this club isn't for you. That obviously they're happy to have you, but like this isn't this <laughs> this might not be your space right now. So um I think that it is, you know, to use the word unapologetic is is very intentional. The film is it feels like a party. I mean, it is it is truly joyous. It is truly unapologetic. But I think for anybody that the film makes uncomfortable, I, I can't imagine really being able to articulate that discomfort. It's a film that's had somewhat of a, uh, I suppose, infamous reputation because it was the first non-pornographic film to be hosted on a pornography website for better or for worse, but it has had a life elsewhere. Uh, It was recently on the Criterion Channel. It's been shown at the Museum of the Moving Image. It is a, in my mind, I think the pinnacle of of observational filmmaking, of of really putting a camera, a, a fly on the wall experience, of bringing in a camera into a space that is animated to begin with, that the camera doesn't cannot animate this space any more than it already is. You know, none of the subjects are necessarily uh, sparked into action by the presence of a camera. I mean, this is a space that is 
in constant action and movement and conversations are happening, whether or not there's a camera around, you know, this is a set of subjects that don't have inhibition that necessarily needs to be broken down because the nature of their work is performance, direct engagement and personal touch. Um, so it's a really exciting film and it's one that you really cannot divorce from the motivation of the filmmaker. You know, we get to see this film as Lila Wanrab actually experienced it, which is rare to be able to put your finger on that. Well, from the joy of a lesbian club in Los Angeles, the next film on the list is probably one that I'll miss unless you change my mind. It played in 2009, and I'm going to read the description. <clears throat> Discursive and experimental, a film that builds its non-narrative by gleaning often contradictory colloquial definitions of American, capital F, freedom, from machine gun rentals at the fairground to killing time patrolling the border and meditating on the reification of manifest destiny. And I'm just not good with docs that make me do all the work. And these, sometimes these non-narrative films feel a bit too much like homework. So give me your sales pitch for Owen the Land. So I do believe, I do believe in films having to make you do work. I think that that's a good thing. Um, but I will say, though, that hopefully my programming notes there didn't take away too much of that work already. I think that... Watching a film like this with no context is very difficult, but I think once there is this understanding that what what this film is approaching is, again, what not what lowercase f freedom necessarily means in America, but what the phrase American freedom really means to casual Americans. And two, obviously, where Manifest Destiny has perhaps become maybe defanged but certainly a pervasive way of thinking. I had to look up what Manifest Destiny was. I didn't know what it was. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And for those who, who perhaps haven't been in a history class for a minute, is the idea that the white man has been directed from God to take the westward lands of the American continent. That it is it is the, the responsibility of the white man to, to tame this country. Uh, and it's a really disgusting idea that led to the biggest genocide in the world's history. And when I say reify, I mean to mainstream, to defang, and to wash it in the waters of accessibility. Um, Manifest Destiny may not be driving genocide necessarily right now, but this American entitlement to, to freedom of movement, to putting out new grounds, to reinforcing the border to even getting in an RV and taking what's yours, you know, it's not a uh, completely innocuous idea that we are owed this, this land. So if I read up on Manifest Destiny, then this film, that's my homework, is it? Then this film will <laughs> begin to make sense without a narrative. I think so. I think there is too, uh, it's a bit more like it's it's a bit structured more like like song. There is a sense of um, contrast as well. There is a real feeling of liberation in the center part of the film. There's a bit about uh, sort of an American legend about the individual that free fell through an accident. He's essentially the the only human without proper equipment to be the highest in the air at a given time. And this, this near-death experience, I mean, he talks about his blood freezing in his veins. 
uh, and surviving this fall, but it's this... <laughs> oh, I'm painting this film as very dark, aren't I? It's, uh, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's a really wild kaleidoscope of really these sort of American images that really needs to be seen. I think it is also open to interpretation. Again, the programming notes are sort of my interpretation on this thing. I think that there are others who've who've had similar reads or very different reads. One can go into it and create their own interpretation, but I do believe that that's really where this film is coming from. Okay, well, I will steal myself to watching it and then send you a thumbs up or a thumbs down afterwards. <laughs> The final two films in the Hindsight series, Disorder, set in Guangzhou, China, and Mandabala, or Sender Bullet, set in Sao Paulo, Brazil, are both explorations of violence and its impact on the lives of the citizens who navigate it on a daily basis. Disorder uses citizen journalism to tell the story, and Mandabala employs a more traditional narrative. So these feel like a matching pair. Tell us a little bit about one or both of these, Ted. Yeah, well, I think you captured exactly what works about Disorder and what it is. And I think Disorder is a film that works at its best with the least amount of context. So I would love to not talk about that okay. because uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it is a film that can be spoiled by talking about it. It needs to be experienced. But Mandabala is really an examination of what actually makes Sao Paulo a violent city. And that's not to suggest that violence is inherent. It's to suggest that in a capitalist society, uh, there are people who definitely profit from violence. The film primarily is concerned with those at the top of the social order who uh, absolutely require Sao Paulo to be a violent place to stay as rich as they are. Uh, whether that's a superstar plastic surgeon who specializes in replacing limbs removed from kidnapping uh, or a sports car dealership that handles uh, platinum and bulletproofing services as well as defensive driving classes for billionaires. Um, it is a, uh, as well as, uh, you know, just general run-of-the-mill political corruption and uh, racketeering. But it is, it, it's a film that I should say as, as bracing and as terrifying as the subject matter can be. It is a film that is unabashedly fun. It is funny. Uh, and it is just the right type of alarming. The filmmaker, uh, an anecdote that I love is that he told his cinematographer early on to just make sure that it looks like RoboCop. Uh, <laughs> it, I see that, but I also feel that this film touches on a genre that I think we're aware of without ever seeing a piece of it, which is perhaps what a South American 1970s crime movie would look like. I mean, it is uh, the only word that I can use to describe this film outside of alarming, shocking, or funny is cool. It deals heavily in coolness. It is a uh, incredibly cinematic experience, and I think it delivers its point wrapped up in a perfect genre bow. It is, uh, it's, it's a really incredible film, and it is one that has, in recent years, all but vanished. So I am very excited to be able to have a hand in, in putting this in front of people. A perfect end to the Hindsight series and a great segue into this year's festival because that is the last one that shows before the outdoor festival happens. Before we close, Ted, I want to talk quickly about the practicalities, about how do people see these films? How do they sign up? Yeah, so um, tickets can be purchased either for individual films or for the entire series through 
TrueFalse's website. And then that will gain you access to our virtual platform, which can be watched in a variety of different ways. And it's a pretty easy experience. The conversations with filmmakers, those will be made available free from the platform. But again, you have to sign up and get the platform. So one would hope that that would inspire some some purchases to watch the entire package uh, or at least a handful of the films. But it is uh, the point here is about accessibility. And two, it's about engaging with the national or international audience that True False has always had that we don't necessarily get to have this year. Teleported for the fest, uh, True False's proper virtual platform of the festival films fills that void. But I think this is an opportunity to engage with the stuff at a very low cost, hopefully from, from very, very far away. Perfect. Well, Hindsight, an eight-week retrospective dive into some of True False's more elusive back catalogue, started this week and runs through May the 2nd. To find out more about the films, go to truefalse.org and click on the Hindsight link. A pass for all eight films costs just $50, or you can buy individual film tickets for $10. All films open at 6pm on Sunday evenings and run for seven days. And once you've started watching, you have a 48-hour window to to complete your viewing. Ted Rogers, thank you for filling us in on the True False Hindsight schedule. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. For the past five years, 50 or so University of Missouri students have been invited to be part of the Undergraduate Visual Arts and Design Showcase. It's a chance for them to display their work in an exhibit setting and the chance to win some pretty significant award money, with two grand prizes of $2,000, one for artistic expression and the other for applied design, plus the chance to win one of five community awards to have a solo exhibit at places like the Columbia Art League, Sega Browdis Gallery and Ragtag Cinema. We have featured some of the artists on the show for the past few years, and I am delighted that we get the chance to do so again this year. Joining me today are undergraduate artists Kylie Isom and Maddie Gomez, along with assistant professor and theatre costume designer Mark Vital. Welcome to the show, Mark, Kylie, and Maddie. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Mark, let's start with a little history on the event, as I'm sure that many people listening don't know what it is. This will be the sixth year of the event, but what is it and how did it all get started? So I have been working with them for about two, two and a half years. Um, this is an event for undergraduate students to showcase the work that they are doing here at Mizzou. These can be um, classes that have done projects. These can be students who are just branching out and trying something new. Um, these can even be activities that don't fall within your major. And it's an opportunity to be recognized, to receive feedback from professional or professional artisans um, in a variety of different areas, as well as to earn professional development funding that you can then use to, I don't know, go do an internship with one of your favorite artists or buy supplies to do that really outlandish thing you wanted, or maybe even take a class. Uh, the undergraduate department or the department of undergraduate studies is really trying to help promote undergraduate students empower them to be creative and to you know chase their dreams 
Well, usually in a normal year, this is all on display. All of the works are on display in Jesse Hall. But obviously this year, that isn't happening. How can people see everybody's work this year? So we have been able to work with the Mizzou Libraries and they have created a website for us. I got to see a preview yesterday and it is amazing. It's going to be really intuitive, very easy to click through. Everyone, each student participating will have, I guess I'll kind of call it a profile where you can click on the work and then see four really beautiful, high quality images of their work. You can read their abstract and get to meet the student via a small video recording. And we've basically gone digital and I'm really excited about it. And I'm hoping that we can get even more people to now see the work. Does it exist in real life at all? Is there still a display somewhere or there's no display this year? There will be an in-person display However, this will only feature the winning projects from the showcase, and that's going to be April 19th through the 24th at the Columbia Art League. Oh, perfect. Okay, well, that's very easy for community people to go and see. So with a few years of this event and exhibit already completed, I wonder what impact the showcase has had on those students who've taken part in the past. Have you had any feedback from people about what it has meant to them as they've moved on in their careers? I've not had too much feedback. I've only had two students participate. Well, actually three now because I have one this year and I'm really excited about her work. Um, but they do benefit from being able to have folks outside of their you know, school department come and talk to them. And it's kind of this really great blend of like interviewing and like showcasing yourself but also seeing what other people are doing and how they're being creative and you're exposed to like architecture and fashion design and floral arrangement which some of the floral arrangements I'm like you can do that with flowers (laughs) and it's like some of them get into like meta art levels and there's also a film category too The winners of that category will be at the Ragtag Cinema. But this is an opportunity for them to get audiences that are outside of the school, like people in the community, to come watch, respond, react, and experience their work. Last year, I think you had that film showcase at Jesse Hall, and I went to it, and it was fantastic. It was like a little mini film festival of all the students' work. I thought it was fantastic. One thing I really like about the showcase is that it is open to all undergraduate students, not just the ones who are specifically studying visual arts and design. So you could be in chemistry or engineering or whatever. It's open to everybody. I'm curious what bodies of work, Mark, have stood out to you over the past five years of students who are really working outside their main discipline. Now, this year, I have a biology student who took a makeup class, theatrical makeup class in the fall and she submitted a piece uh, called Birthday Toasted. And it is a makeup design that has a photograph element to it, um, since you can't really like have a person stand there for 12 hours. So so that stood out to me. Um, I'll also say, looking at the architecture work that some students have produced, it's really innovative and amazing to look at. There are, some costume fashion department things that have come out that it's like art for the body 
mm-hmm. which has been really telling. And then I think the floral arrangements really, they floor me because they are almost producing like these, or maybe not almost, they're producing art installations that you as the, the observer are walking and interacting with almost like you're part of the floral arrangement. Let me turn to Kylie and Maddie, artists who are in the showcase. Kylie, your major is art and your entry in the showcase is a set of photographs titled Home Body. And Maddie, your major is digital storytelling and your work in the show is a six minute video called Mariposa. So Maddie, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about Mariposa. Mariposa was a COVID product. <laughs> Originally, that was not my plan. <laughs> it was a genealogy project that I had for class and I the the prompt was like to create something a part of you. And I was going to go towards the mental health route, but instead COVID happened and I had to go home. And so I had to find a different way to tell a story. And so I was looking through my MacBook and I found home videos dating back to like the sixties of my family. And so I thought I would tell the story on how my family migrated from Mexico to the US, but with the struggle of being abused by all the men in my family. So it's basically the story about my mom coming here and then my aunts coming here, building an empire for themselves and not letting the past define who they are and succeeding without having any help (laughs) from anybody. You have all these disparate parts. You know, you have the phone call with your aunt. You have all these old bits of city camera footage of your family and two pieces of music. Did it seem when you set out like it wasn't all going to come together? You know what? I struggled editing it. I thought it was not going to be good. I didn't have a storyline. I uh, I actually had to call my aunt and be like, what was the story again? I have no idea how this goes. <laughs> <laughs> but in the end, it came together unexpectedly. I just let the music tell the story and the audio. Whatever the audio says, I tried to find things that would justify what she said or provide an environment similar to what it was. Because sometimes like, I couldn't find exactly what she said, but I'm kind of happy on how it turned out. Because sometimes it's like the unexpected that makes it really good. Yeah, I, it doesn't look like you struggled with it. It looks like you found a lovely arc to the story pretty fast. Tell me about the two pieces of music that you chose for the work. So I chose Chopin pieces. My mother is a big fan of Chopin, Impromptu and Nocturne, I think. I was listening to both of them while cooking, and it gave me the idea of telling more of like a build-up. I wanted to tell a build-up to um, like a climax, highlighting of this is where they started, this is where they were struggling, and I show the men who hurt them. And then for the rest of the movie, I do not include them anymore unless mentioned. And it's just softer music highlighting like their life beginning and good things are happening or them moving to the United States. They're learning the language. They're making money. They're renting a house now. I find little inspirations here and there. So I thought it'd be a good idea to use something that holds deeply to my mom's heart. I love how you say in the film to your auntie, you know, tell me in Spanish. (laughs) And then she tells you in English with a little bit of Spanish. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think she was trying to pull a fast one on me and practice her English. And I really needed her to uh, tell me in Spanish because I was trying to go for the Spanish aesthetic. (laughs) (laughs) What's the goal of your film? What do you want people to walk away thinking? 
I've thought about this question for a long time because a lot of people ask me this and I at first I didn't know I just made it because it was a project but I went back and edited some things and I think I want them to kind of under not understand but walk away feeling that if they are experiencing the same thing or if they know somebody's experiencing the same thing I want them to be comfortable with watching topics like this like it's not just something you see on the big screen because it's fantasy or um, just like entertainment like this is a real thing and I want them just to be comfortable and educated over something that doesn't really get to be spoken about especially through visuals a lot well it is beautifully made I, I really enjoyed it thank you thank you Kylie your work home slash body also focuses on the female experience. Tell us about the photography that comprises your exhibit. Yes. Okay. So with a push to the indoors and um, essentially having to learn how to make art in the private sphere, where I typically tended to point my camera towards the public. When we shifted during the pandemic into a more home-based practice, I had to figure out how to navigate making work that way. And I think that when I was pushed to this domestic space, I started to sort of see a relationship to the domestic that I hadn't gotten to experience as a first-generation college student. Um, So I started to think about the relationship to the female body historically as it's been tethered to the domestic space. And with that, I began to make work that sort of investigates this history of misrepresentation and history of women being pushed to the domestic. And so really, again, like Maddie, the shift to home sort of brought back this project that I had no intentions of making in the first place. Can you describe the photographs because we're on the radio? Yeah, so these are black and white self-portraits made with a large format 4x5 film camera. And I, I always reference the camera because I feel like it was really a tool for me to sort of draw from this historical image making and make a through line to present day image making. It was really my way of referencing this feminist art historical canon that I really wanted to emphasize in my work. So yes, there are a series of black and white self-portraits, often including emblems of femininity like floral and textiles and objects of fashion. And my goal with the photos is to sort of abstract the body or distort the body or conceal the body as a way to draw attention and a heightened sense of awareness of the body, if that makes sense. Right. So you in in the photographs, you have domestic objects and you are partially obscured. There's just various parts of your body on view. Yes. Does that sound right? Yes, correct. Okay. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about the camera. I feel like in this age of super high-tech smartphones, using a 4x5 camera is pretty unusual. Tell me about the history with that camera. Yes, so the history of this camera is, is that it was one of the first ways to make images. And I think that my interest in the history of image making is that it was, it's always been a means of communication and documentation that could be controlled by women. I think of high art like 
um, sculpture and painting, they were really male-dominated areas that left little spaces for women to act as professionals or, I mean, really anything but subjects. So I was really interested in photography as a means of reclaiming representation. And for me, using a historical camera like the 4x5, which is a very slow and manual process, was super important for my practice. So you develop things, you have your own darkroom too, so you're, it's really an old school process that you're using. Yes, yes, it's very slow and very deliberate and intentional. Tell me a little bit about, so you, you cited photographers like Cindy Sherman and Francesca Woodman as your influences. What was it about their work that spoke to you? Specifically with Cindy Sherman, I think that the sustained and provocative exploration of identity and representation through self-portraiture was incredibly interesting to me. She, Cindy Sherman specifically, is performing these sort of stereotypical female roles inspired by Hollywood films in the 50s and 60s with her project Untitled Film Stills. So I was really interested in this sort of playing a character and assuming a role as a way of, of really narrowing in on stereotype and sort of subverting these stereotypes. Francesca Woodman, um, she does a similar thing, but to me it's in a, it's kind of in a different way where she's using the camera as sort of a tool. And it's also a manual camera, so she's using long shutter speeds, double exposures to sort of play with the ways in which the camera can communicate a feeling or can communicate a stance on these expectations of female of femininity. So yeah, those are my two influences that I cite, and it's very important that my conversation, or I'm not really contributing a new conversation, this is an ongoing conversation all throughout history that I'm very interested in participating in. Mark, I know in past years you've had many more applications for the showcase than you have space for, and so there is an initial jurying process done by you and your colleagues. What are you looking for at that point? We're looking for intent to participate, a true desire to participate. Often you'll like do a call and people come, but then they lose interest. So we want folks who are going to be interested going to do the work. And we're also looking for high quality projects that do exist. We don't really want something that's just hypothetical or just a cool idea. We want you to have already started, if not finished, the project so that we know we'll have it, we'll be able to showcase and talk about it. So if if you had something that was unfinished, it's more like, oh, I need to like fix some of this paint work because the shadows and the highlights aren't quite there. That's more of the stage of like unfinished we would accept, but we we are looking for things that do exist as part of being able to uh, be eligible to participate. Um, and it also has to be produced within the year that we are looking at. So if you wanted to participate in 2022, then anything produced in 2021 would be eligible. Yeah, that's good. So you don't have work that's been accumulating dust for a few years. Yeah. Maddie, you are majoring in digital storytelling, as I said, and I'm curious, looking ahead, what kind of stories do you want to tell in your career? You know what? I've been going back and forth between either documentary or music videos. <laughs> I have no idea yet. I'm still exploring myself. I'm currently in video art, which is very interesting because we go into like projecting mapping, I believe, and then we can make like experimental films. And I just recently made one. Um, 
through, uh, I think, like clips from Vimeo and just like reverbing some music. So that's taking my interest. So I'm just currently exploring right now since I think I have like two more years left of school. But I think my end goal is to, um, I want to make like sci-fi movies. (laughs) Okay, wow. Okay. I wasn't (laughs) expecting that. (laughs) I'm still, I'm still looking, but sci-fi movies take a uh, huge interest in me. Yeah, Kylie, your professor Joe Johnson said of you that you are remarkably productive, and he thinks that when you graduate, you're going to have a major impact in the field. What's in your dreams? What impact might that be? You know, I've thought about this question a lot, and I think that the end goal for me is just to raise question to these topics that I'm interested in. I, I want to make people begin to question these things. I don't I don't hope to solve any issues. I don't hope to make an overarching resolution in the places that I see issues today, um, simply because I can't do that alone. But at the end of the day, if my work raises question to those things and and begins to make someone consider, I feel it's worth it. So I'm I'm hoping to continue to make work that is impactful and very rooted in issue and rooted in especially my interest in feminism and all of all of those things. I think that you should always tell the stories that are closest to you. Mark, usually there is a keynote address during the showcase event, but you are foregoing that this year for obvious pandemic reasons. But for people who want to see the showcase and you can vote, there's a People's Choice Award too. What are some of the key dates and where do people go to see and do everything? So if you want to see the showcase, which I highly encourage because these students are turning out the work, (laughs) um, you want to go to undergraduate studies dot missouri dot edu slash showcase and that will take you there um you can also google v-a-d-s mizzou and then that should also bring our website up to you from there you should be able to access the official showcase website uh, which is still under construction and then as for dates the online website exhibit goes live on march 17th so mark your calendars for March 17th. That's next Tuesday, right? Yes. Jurying happens March 22nd through the 23rd, which is done by three guest artists. We will be announcing the winners March 25th through the 26th. And then April 19th through 22nd, film applications will be shown at the Ragtag Theater. And the Art League show will be April 19th through the 24th at the Columbia Art League. Perfect. So last question before we close. Maddie, if you won $2,000, what, which is the top prize, what would you do with it? I have been wanting a camera for so long. <laughs> I would invest in a camera because my mom doesn't let me use hers anymore because um, I'm here and I accidentally broke a little part of it. <laughs> and yeah, I just want to be able to have my own camera so that I don't have to keep checking out one from the library and turning it back in every two days and risking getting an overdue fee. <laughs> <laughs> and Kylie, what about you? If I were to win the the money, I would use it to continue to buy materials. So I buy the film and the tools I use to construct these images. Um, those cost money. And so if I were to win this, I would set the money aside and slowly start to use it as a way to fund continuing my practice. 
Well, Mark Vital, Kylie Isom and Maddie Gomez, thank you so much for taking the time to come and tell us about the Visual Arts and Design Showcase at Mizzou. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. I was happy to be here. We have one last art visit to make today, but as it is an event steeped in secrecy, it is only a short visit because sealed lips do not make compelling radio. But Greenhouse Theatre Project, who have become masters of the Zoom theatre experience over the past 12 months, are back for one night only tomorrow night, presenting a variety show. And here to spill as few beans as you can possibly get away with is Greenhouse Theatre Project founder, director and overall mistress, Elizabeth Broughton Palmieri. Good day to you, Mistress Elizabeth. Hello. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So your pitch is that this is all so super secret that if you told us anything, you'd have to lock us in cold storage with nothing but a tin of cat food and a can of flat out of date diet soda. So what can you tell us that will both whet our appetite and make us rush to our computer to buy a ticket? <laughs> well, okay. First, what I can say is... Uh, we're calling this Greenlight Special, a mystery variety show. And I guess the information that you need to know is that there are going to be four acts from coast to coast. So these uh, performers are from all over the United States and all of their performances are unique. So you will not see one in the same. They are, they are very uh, different styles and aesthetics of performances. And uh, basically, you know, the criteria that I gave the performers is that uh, it just could not exceed, their performance could not exceed 12 minutes and anything else was very fair game. <laughs> so, um, so basically each of them will have, you know, anywhere between 10 and 12 minutes and, uh, and I'll be hosting it. So you'll see me pop on at the beginning and I will pop on at the end, and I'm going to attempt to do something uh, live online that I have never done before. <laughs> so I hope that entices you. Um, but yeah, so that's you know that's that's the basic gist, and we are keeping all the performances a secret because I mean, how fun is that, right? <laughs> it's it's a little bit like um, the super secret pop up performances that we were doing, you know when back when we could all be in person and we would reveal the location and the time, but we would not reveal what the piece itself was going to consist of. And we liked, you know, making those curating those experiences to be just uh, fun and mysterious, you know, and we usually wouldn't even let the audience into the space where we were until maybe just a couple minutes beforehand and everyone packs in like sardines and then and then we would reveal this performance. And so now that we're in the Zoom world, we can still maintain a little bit of that allure, I guess, by just not giving you, not spilling the beans, right, Diana? <laughs> Did you love mystery stories when you were a child? Oh my gosh, I still love mystery stories. That's... <laughs> British specifically, like British mysteries. That's that's what I watch on Netflix. It's it's you know the the, the books I love to read, uh, and and I even when I had my baby, you know, I didn't want to find out the gender because I was just like, you know what? I mean, I I want to have a little bit of mystery. I want, you know, I, I don't want to uh, think I know everything about this thing that I'm growing inside of me before I have it. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I, I think that you know this definitely 
stems from my own my own desires, you know, and, and keeping things um, kind of obscure and hush hush. But uh, but then the reveal will be on Saturday night, and the show will run about an hour, so it's not long. It starts at nine p.m. Central Time, and uh, so it's kind of a perfect little, you know, if people have kids, you put them to bed, get a little drink, kick back, and uh, and it's very casual. So these four performances, do we as regular Greenhouse Theatre audience, do we know these people or are these new people you haven't worked with before? Uh, well, <laughs> you may recognize some or one or none. <laughs> and there may be some new people that you've never seen before. How about that for an answer? <laughs> <laughs> and these four acts that we're seeing, do they span music to comedy Can yes you okay so it's a little bit <laughs> of everything okay. yes okay and um is this this is a specific greenhouse project this is not somebody else's project that you're screening this is an elizabeth brown palmieri devised project from start to finish correct okay well, there we go then. <laughs> if Elizabeth has piqued your curiosity and you would like to see the Greenlight Special Variety Show, you can find tickets at greenhousetp.org and they cost $10. The show opens on Zoom at 9pm tomorrow night for one night only. And I'm guessing you should put your children to bed first. This is not children friendly, is it? Uh, I really actually have no idea as i told you oh, you haven't seen it either I, as i told you all bets are off this is going to be as much of of an experience a new experience for me as it will be for the audience we'll just put it that way well elizabeth thank you for ever so slightly enlightening us <laughs> no problem thanks so much diana and that is it for another week. Spring is almost here. There are two outdoor festivals on the horizon. I'm hoping that within the next couple of months, someone jabs a vaccine in my arm so I can sit in a theatre once more. That will be glorious. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can find at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify or you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. As always, my thanks go to my guest today, Ragtag Cinema Programmer Ted Rogers, Assistant Professor at the University of Missouri, Mark Vital, Photographer Kylie Isom, Videographer Maddie Gomez, and my good friend, Greenhouse Theatre Project Executive Director, Elizabeth Broughton Palmieri. And thanks also go to the guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can find more of Yasmin's music and her new album on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.